You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Rudy Rucker. His newest book is an autobiography, Nested Scrolls. Thank you for joining me, Rudy. It's good to see you again, Rick. You know, Rudy, as I read that book, I realized that for the entire generation of science fiction writers who preceded you, that book would have been science fiction, the times it documented. Uh, That's true. It's sort of caught up with us, so we have to kind of get weirder to stay ahead of the curve. And I have to say that few are more adept at that process than you. I'd like you to talk about uh, just going back and visiting your memories, because memories is a tricky thing, isn't it? Yeah, it was It was fun to sort of recreate my life. I found that things that I thought I didn't remember so well, if I would focus on it for maybe a day or two while I was thinking about it and writing about it, it was sort of like rubbing off the dirt on a crystal and then I could see inside now, I'd like you to just talk about the, the process of that in terms of casting it into prose, because it's one thing to have kind of images drifting in your mind and kind of memories of conversation. It's another thing to convert that into language. Well, that's a problem. People, when they try to write their autobiography, they, they realize that their life is this sort of branching fractal, and it, it's hard to just put it into a, a, a string of, of stories. So... One thing, I wrote it fairly quickly. I just told the stories as they came to mind, as if I was talking to a friend. And uh, though then, of course, I went back and revised it numerous times to to make it flow. One of the things I think that that strikes me about, you know, the, the experiences of your life is that they are so kind of rooted in some of the what would have been uh, considered, I guess, a social science fiction uh, uh, back in the 1950s, what you experienced in real life. So I'd like you to just, I, I, as you were going through these experiences in in your life, did you think about the, and you're, you know, a guy who's always been interested in that, did you think about, wow, I mean, it's 2001 and here I am, I'm not, I, I'm, where's that damn monolith? Uh it was sort of like to be working at a software company for a few years. It was kind of amazing that we were doing these science fictional things like working on virtual reality and artificial life programs. And uh, it was it was kind of cool and teaching it computer science to see the whole wave and riding along on it. Uh, people used to dream of having this sort of universal encyclopedia where you could access it by something that you carried in your pocket. And to see that come to fruition with the web and Google, it was, uh, it's been very cool. You know, one of the things I think that distinguishes all your work from everybody else is you have a really unique sense of humor and a, a sen- I guess a sense of not taking um, the thing, you know, the very deep thoughts that you're capable of and capable of expressing, you don't take that very seriously. And I think that's what makes your work so uh, accessible and so much fun to read. Well, I like to be playful with the ideas. I, I don't ever want to be in a position where, you know, I'm sort of shaking my fist and saying, this is the answer. And then to keep saying that decade after decade, I, I like to, the the cubist artist Picabia once said, uh, ideas are like shirts. I, I like to 
put a new one on every couple of days. Uh, that's a very Fortean thought, too. Uh, and Charles Fort said that uh, uh, science is a fashion like anything else. Yeah, and uh, also something that I like to do is to, it, to to emphasize the human element in the science fiction. That So it's not, you know, these sort of robotic people, but to have them be like the real people that I know. Because people, they don't really change over the the decades over the centuries. There's a lot of things that are always very similar to them, and I try to avoid the trap of having them be these sort of bleached-out, futuristic, blank people. Well, I think that's one of the things, again, that you know you capture really well because uh, despite how much we hear, read in science fiction that the world is going to be transformed and everything's going to change, it seems like, you know, uh, for me, 2001 is not so different from 1968 when I saw the movie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it is kind of amazing to be in the 21st century, and uh, I mean here it is 2012, and sometimes you'll look at that number and it just seems odd, you know, growing up in the 50s and science fiction books would often be set in, in years like 2012, and uh, it's here we are and, and it's happening, and it's it's not exactly like anybody predicted, which is uh, it's always a challenge. Uh, right now, I'm trying to write a book that's set in 2080, and just to remember to, uh, th- there's so many things that change, and uh, it's it's essentially impossible to predict the future, but uh, it's always fun to try. I, and I think, too, uh, obviously science fiction is so much about our, pre- our presence. So, I mean, one of the things I think you do really well is to hold... To, to emphasize the funhouse mirror aspect of science fiction. And you have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, it's there's a sense in which really you are writing about the present and you're putting it through a distorting lens and just pumping up some aspects of the present and so people sort of notice them. I mean, we tend to think that this is natural and, and you know, that we're all walking around with cell phones and, and pushing buttons. And uh, th- these are very kind of odd things and they aren't, going to be the same, you know, in 10 or 20 years. And just to be aware that it's it's very contingent, whatever our present is. And it's it's very science fictional. You know, that's one of the things, too, is as I was reading your uh, nested scrolls, I was thinking, you know, God, if he'd written this back in, you know, 1965, this would be a science fiction novel, and it'd be a pretty damn good one, too. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to see see the just the things keep flowing on and the changes that happen to us. Um, I'm happy to to have been a part of so much of it. Uh, one of your uh, talents is as a painter, and you have a new book collecting your paintings. And I think your paintings reflect in a really perfect manner the 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 uh, fun in your writing. And I'd like you to talk about how much crosstalk there is between the two. Yeah, I started painting around, uh, I think it was 1999. I was working on a book about the painter Peter Bruegel, and I thought I should learn to paint myself so I can, you know, better describe what what it would be like to be an artist. And I found, uh, I I keep doing it. I do a painting every month or two, and uh, they're generally pretty bright and cheerful. And there is uh, sometimes when I'm working on a novel and I'm trying to visualize something that might happen, it's it's useful to, to do a painting, even if though I, I don't know exactly how it's going to fit into the book, but to just sort of let that other part of my brain out and 
just sort of pre-visualize things. And I don't actually end up using everything that I put in a painting in, in, in the novels. And I'll also do paintings that don't have anything to do with the novels. I was at, um, at a show the other day, it was paintings from the Renaissance. And on several of the paintings, it says the, the, symbol, the meaning of the symbolism in this picture is still unclear. And I, I like the idea of a picture that's like, an unknown parable. I mean, something definite is happening, but we don't really understand what it means. I'd like to get that uh, saying on a T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, one of the things that I think um, you were saying uh, about your work, and, and I think about you too, <clears throat> bright and cheerful, these are not days that inspire most of us to be bright and cheerful. Uh, where do you find the wherewithal to do so? Well, I, I don't take the media news too seriously i mean they're sort of they're always selling sort of the same group of stories you know crisis poison not enough money uh everything's terrible uh we're not doing anything right and that's it's sort of a just a tone that that people expect from the tv news and from the newspapers and perhaps it gets your adrenaline going in the morning you know that you you feel angry enough to get out of bed and do something, but I always, I, I like the old saying, cultivate your own garden, and to, I mean, I look outside at nature, and, and nature, you know, isn't changing, it's still the same, and we're not, in fact, killing everything, there's still trees, and, and wild turkeys in my yard, and gophers, and deer, and uh, the the family life is important to me, because this is, these, these are the things that are the sort of basic things in life, and I think it's it's good to keep your eye on those things and, and not let the media eat your brain. You know, what you said makes me think about uh, every time I drive down to Southern California, you know, you, you live in Northern California, and it's a, pretty much a giant metropolis from Marin to almost Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And, and then in Southern California, it's a metropolis pretty much from Santa Barbara all the way to San Diego. But there's a huge middle part of, of California that's pretty much just beautiful green hills. And it's easy to forget how much, you know, empty space there is out there. I always think that, particularly when I fly somewhere, you look down and you imagine that it's crowded, but the cities are these very isolated patches, and there's really so much room that we aren't using. Uh, it, it makes you wonder, I mean, in what sense is there overpopulation? It, it's, I mean, maybe if you had a big city more often, there would be a lack of resources of some kind, but it's there's really an awful lot out there, and it's good to remember. I try to get out into nature uh, at least once a week in one way or another. And uh, I like looking at the waving branches of trees. I always enjoy that because I like things that are chaotic and gnarly and unpredictable. And uh, that's always there. And it's uh, it's forever, forever with us. You know, when you said that, I just remembered that uh, a time when I was reading, and this is one of the important parts about reading, is I was reading Mathematicians in Love, and I was in a restaurant, and I looked out the window, and I just saw all the trees, there was a bit, it was in Santa Cruz, and there was a bunch of trees right outside the restaurant, and all the leaves were just shaking in this kind of like really intense motion, and it, it was very, it was really beautiful, and I just thought, you know, that's, this is kind of one of those reading moments, and I think that's one of the things that your fiction does really well, is to like take us 
out of ourselves and into where you're writing about and into a kind of a place where their joy and happiness are somewhat possible. Uh, yeah, I think that's in a way it's a type of almost a subversive thing to do to suggest that the world is interesting just as it is. Uh, I like to wake people up uh, to, you know, to appreciate what's around them. I've been speaking with Rudy Rucker. His latest book is Nested Scrolls. Thank you for joining me, Rudy. Thanks, Rick. Always good to see you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.